You know, isn't it wonderful when we have we have times when no matter what else may be going on around us, the Lord just draws him to himself. And as we know, music is one of the primary ways that he does that. He just draws us to him. And uh, I don't know about you, but even though there was all that problem at the beginning and there's one particular song I don't care for, but they were all wonderful songs of worship to our Lord. And um, they lift me up. And, and I really thank God for that. You know, in a similar way, probably most, if not all of you, have, um, have had experiences where maybe you went to a, uh, a Bible conference or you went to a retreat or maybe it was a time when you were younger, maybe when you, you went to a Christian camp for a week or two. And during the time that you were at that conference or retreat or camp, everything was focused on God. Your minds, your activities, your interactions with other people were focused on God. And you really, really experienced being lifted up by the Lord and being being encouraged in your faith and feeling that you really have been refreshed. You know, those are wonderful times. I hope all of you have had those times. You know, we oftentimes call them mountaintop experiences. And uh, I know for the guys in, in our fellowship, that was a literal term. That was a literal because we went to the mountains and um, we stayed at a cabin in the mountains and we had a great time, a great time of fellowship with each other and with the Lord. And we had a great time of, of resting in the Lord, times of prayer. It was just wonderful. And then we'd say our final group prayer. And if anybody had to leave for some appointment, they would do so. But the rest of us, we would just, we'd stay in the cabin. We'd wash all the dishes and make sure they were all clean and make sure all the, all the carpets and rugs were vacuumed and all the floors were swept clean and We'd made sure that the, the cabin was at least in the good and the best shape that it was when we came there and hopefully we left it in better shape. And then we then we get in our cars and and we drive back down down the mountain. And uh, often our conversations in the car with each other were kind of a continuation, but it became less and less so. And then when we finally got down, we got down the mountain, we got back to our city, we got back 
back home, you know, we were just still feeling that, that uplifting. But we knew that the mountaintop experience was over. And many of us would work hard for at least several days to keep that, that spiritual high going and going back to the notes that we took and the scriptures that we read, praying about the things that we learned and those things that the Lord convicted us on that we knew we had to change. But then over time, that, that mountaintop experience blended back into our regular lives as it has to. We had to go to work. We had relationships with our family. And it was important that we fully engage with them. If we could, we spent some time with our spouse telling them about that, that mountaintop experience. But then again, after a while, it would kind of calm down and even go away, although we'd look back on it in a very positive way. What we're about to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 16 and 17 is really about a mountaintop experience that I know with no doubt the, the three disciples that were there never lost what they experienced on that mountaintop. So we're going to move into that now. And I'm going to start, well, I'm going to start with a bit of a review. After all the talk in the last chapter, in chapter 16, talk about the leaven of the Pharisees, the false doctrine of the Pharisees, Jesus talking about, telling them about his coming crucifixion, and resurrection. And then the very serious teaching that he gave on the importance of taking up their cross and following him, meaning die to yourselves in order to follow Jesus. And then I believe that Jesus balanced all of that out for them and for us by also revealing the, the Christian life as one of strength and power, communion with God, sharing in God's glory, and, and even being given a glimpse of heaven, which is what he promises in verse 28 of chapter 16, which actually belongs at the beginning of chapter 17. I'll read that verse again. 16:28. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
This verse has been a challenge for many people because Jesus' kingdom has not yet physically come to earth. It has come spiritually, and it grows with every new believer coming to salvation. But has anyone seen Jesus coming when a person is saved? Spiritually, certainly but usually not physically. I know a few of us have shared times when we've literally seen the Lord, but that's very, very uncommon. Now, in all three of the, what we call the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the ones that are pretty much organized in a similar way, in all three of those synoptic gospels, the statement that Jesus gives in verse 28 occurs immediately before the transfiguration. But because all the apostles died before Christ's physical second coming, most students over the centuries have concluded that Jesus' promise in verse 28 was fulfilled at the Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John did see Jesus in his glory, and which Matthew, Mark, and Luke place immediately after that verse, 28. I'm going to remind you, by the way, I, I say that verse 28 belongs at the beginning of chapter 17. Remember, the inspired Bible was not written in chapters and verses. Those didn't come, they were put in there by man more than a thousand years, 1,500 years later. But I want to talk about that verse for a few minutes. The word that's translated coming, when he says the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, the word translated coming can just as easily be translated to make one's appearance or to show or to reveal himself, which I believe is the proper rendition in this context. Also, the word translated kingdom can just as properly be translated royal splendor, royal splendor, because the word focuses more on an individual than a physical geographical kingdom. In fact, Thayer's lexicon, one of the most used and trusted lexicons, gives this in his definition talking about that word translated kingdom, can also be translated royal power, kingship, dominion, rule. And then he says this, not to be confused with an actual kingdom, but rather the right or authority to rule over a kingdom. Therefore, verse 16, 28, could more correctly read Jesus saying, Assuredly, I say to you, 
There are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man revealed in his royal splendor. I'll read that again. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here, and he was talking to his disciples, who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man revealed in his royal splendor, which will happen in just a few days in the text, as we'll see. Now, I don't know about you, but as I was studying this and I put that together, I said, now that makes a lot more sense. That makes a lot more sense. In addition, though, I want to just put this, this little aside. In addition to the event we're studying this morning, the transfiguration of Christ, one apostle, the apostle John, would still be alive to see Jesus again in all his resurrected glory and splendor 60 or so years later in his life. We read about that in the first chapter of the Revelation, verses 9 to 18, when Jesus appears to him, speaks to him, and then dictates letters to the seven churches. And it's interesting that when John saw Jesus in that situation, he immediately fell flat on his face before the resurrected Lord. But in any case, these three disciples were eyewitnesses to the vision of Christ in all his power, glory, and splendor, as we'll see described right now. Matthew chapter 17, the first three verses. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter, James, and John. For some reason, Jesus selected these three disciples to accompany him numerous times during his ministry, including when he healed the ruler of the synagogue's daughter. Remember when he went in to heal the girl? Her parents and just Peter, James, and John went into that room when he brought that, that girl back to life. Also, when Jesus taught about the end of the age, it was because Peter, James, and John, along with Andrew, Peter's brother, had drawn Jesus aside and asked him, what will be the signs of the coming that you've just described? And he goes on and gives a long description of what will happen at the end of the age. And then you'll remember 
the night before he was crucified, when he was with his disciples, he took Peter, James, and John further into the Garden of Gethsemane, where they all were. He took them further in, leaving the other disciples at the, at the edge of the garden. And then he went a little further and prayed. And then again, here at his transfiguration. So there, there's four times when, for some reason, Jesus marked out specifically Peter, James, and John. Now, Scripture gives us no hint as to why Jesus selected these three. Although, of course, there has been lots of speculation. That's a fancy word for guessing. But there's lots of speculation over the centuries. And some, I have to laugh, some have even speculated that Jesus took them with him because those three needed more training and supervision than the others. I personally think that's ridiculous and really grasping at straws. But the simple fact is that God doesn't tell us. He doesn't, we don't know why he took them. And then we're told, still in verse 1 of Matthew 17, that he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Again, the question comes, what mountain was it? The scripture doesn't say. For centuries, okay, I'm going to go back to what we had as a beginning because I want you to look as I'm talking. For centuries, the church said it was Mount Tabor not Mount Arbel, as I've written over there. That's Mount Tabor. Because Constantine's mother, Catherine, selected it as she traveled around to mark key places in the New Testament without any real knowledge or careful study at all. But Mount Tabor isn't even a mountain, as you see there. It's much less a high mountain. It's basically a solitary 1,900-foot bump or hill in the eastern part of the Valley of Jezreel. And actually, it is quite close to the ridge where Nazareth is situated. Again, you look at, I'm sorry, Mount Tabor here, and then you look at Mount Hermon. A much better choice for that high mountain is Mount Hermon, which is 9,300 feet high and relatively close to Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus had been with his disciples just a few days earlier. We read that in the middle of the last chapter. Just a few days earlier, 
and it's also the location where most of the previous chapter's events occurred. So I ask you, look at these two, and actually Mount Tabor looks bigger than it is, but Mount Hermon is majestic. So that's probably where he went. But we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. And then we're told that he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. I want to talk about that word. The word transfigured means transformation. In fact, the, the, the base word is metamorphosis, which we take as metamorphosis. A, a total change. It's not just a change in outward appearance, but it's also the idea of a change of one's inmost nature so that it is extremely externally visible. A change arising from the essential nature of a person, not just uh, an external impression. The impact on the disciples must have been shocking. Jesus became so different, so bright in appearance, that he was even difficult to look at. The text tells us he was like the sun. And why not? All the disciples have seen Jesus thus far in his ministry, that he was Jesus just was simply a common-looking man who did incredible things. So they finally concluded that he is the Christ. But now, but now they see Jesus as the Messiah, as the Holy One of God as the King of Kings in his glory. And then we're told they also saw Moses and Elijah glorified with Jesus. And if that weren't shocking enough, they watch as Moses and Elijah walk up to Jesus and have a conversation with him. Here in Matthew, we're not told what they talked about, but Luke tells us. He tells us that they talked about, I'm going to quote now, Luke 9, 30 and 31. They spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were talking about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. As he had told his disciples what happened, just a few days before. So now we have Moses and Elijah. Well, I, as soon as I read this, I wonder how Peter, James, and John recognize them. Because these two Old Testament saints appeared to the disciples as they spoke with Jesus. But Moses had lived about 1,500 years before and Elijah about 900 years before. Yet, here they were, 
clearly alive and in some sort of glorified state. It makes you wonder. It makes you wonder about what happens to believers after we die. Again, God's word is silent about why they were there other than to speak with Christ, who is their creator and Lord, to speak with him about his coming sacrifice and the resurrection that follows. Nobody knows anything else for certain. However, again, some have speculated, and this makes more sense, that Moses and Elijah were there because they represent the Old Testament. They represent the law, that's Moses, and the prophets, that would be Elijah. And in doing so, they meet with Jesus Christ, who is now bringing the new covenant into the world, what we call the New Testament. Others say that these two represent saints who die and are taken to heaven, and that would be Moses and the saints who are dead at the time of the rapture, and Elijah representing people who are caught up to heaven without dying. Without dying. And that would be Enoch, which we read in Genesis 5, he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. It would also represent Elijah himself, and it represents those who will be alive at the time of the rapture. But again, these are just speculations by Bible scholars and students over the last 20 centuries. But Peter, <laughs> Peter, Peter had a more immediate idea as he watched Moses and Elijah with Jesus. We'll read verses 4 through 7. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, tents or lean-tos, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. God the Father interrupted Pete. As he was blabbering away. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. So being overwhelmed by the vision, with Moses and Elijah departing from Jesus, again, we see that in Luke, it's as they were departing that Pete comes up with this blabber. Peter just blurted out, Lord, it is good for us to be here. 
If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, Mark and Luke tell us that Peter didn't know what he was saying when he said this. So we got to cut him some slack. Nevertheless, when Peter said that, he committed a very serious error and an offense to God by putting Moses and Elijah on an equal basis with Jesus because he proposed making three equal tabernacles, tents or lean-tos. Actually, the, the word was used to make these, these lean-tos out of branches and sticks and, and leaves and stuff as they did every year at the Feast of Tabernacles. But he put Moses and Elijah, two created beings, on an equal plane with Jesus Christ, who is the Creator and who is their Creator. A bright cloud overshadowed them. This is the cloud of, of God's glory as seen over Mount Sinai and leading the Israelites in the desert and also in other places. It's known as the Shekinah in the Old Testament. And from his Shekinah, God the Father spoke audibly to Peter and the others even as he did, you'll recall, at Jesus' baptism. That was back when we looked at Matthew chapter 3. God the Father was not happy, but he interrupted Peter with a strong rebuke because Jesus is unique and is his beloved son. Again, we'll look at verse 5. While he, Peter, was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased. Hear him. In other words, the Father was saying to Peter, Shut up and listen to my Son. He is my beloved, and I am well pleased with him. It would be interesting to look at other times when the Father spoke of Jesus. There's one in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and Isaiah 42, verse 1. Again, in Matthew, we just read of the month or so ago, Matthew 12, 18, and in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. There's a lot of scriptures here, and they're all listed in your cross-reference sheet. In all of those cases, we'd see that the Father is speaking scripture here in this scene. And then verse 6, when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Naturally, when they heard this voice, 
They must have cringed, tucked their heads, fallen on their faces, and they were terrified. What's interesting, Peter was rebuked. He was terrified. He fell on his face. On his face. It must have been really one of those experiences that it's like, oh man, I really blew it this time. But Peter himself will refer to this instance, to this even hearing the voice of the Father. He'll refer to this years later in a very positive way in his second letter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. So, over the years from when this happened to when Peter was writing letters to the church, he understood how very, very important and precious that experience was. Now, this scene also signifies Matthew's theme, we've spoken of it before, his theme of the rising conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, chief priests, and elders. By speaking these words at this time and in this situation with these men, the Father very clearly sets Jesus above the law and the prophets as represented by Moses and Elijah. And as we know, all those Jewish leaders, they kept pointing back to the law and the prophets, especially as they had purposely misinterpreted the Old Testament. But this scene clearly puts Jesus above them. You see, Jesus isn't just another or a better lawgiver or prophet. No, Jesus is the Messiah, the only begotten Son of the Father, and therefore He is God, God the Son Himself. Elsewhere we learn that He is the creator and sustainer of the universe, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. He is unique and not comparable at all with anyone or anything. I would invite you just to read the first 14 verses of John's Gospel. And it tells us the creation was created by him and for him. And for him. But we read in verse 7, Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and don't be afraid. It's amazing how many times in both the Old Testament and New, when an angel or the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Christ, how often when they appear, People fall flat on their face, terrified. And just about every time, the angel or the angel of the Lord says these very words, Arise, 
don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He said it to Zechariah, to Mary. He said it to Joshua. He said it to so many people in both Testaments. Once again, Jesus needed to comfort and reassure his disciples. They were certainly in awe and possibly in fear of Jesus at that moment. More than when he walked on the water. More than when he fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. More than when he calmed the wind and the waves. More than when he cleansed lepers, cast out demons, knew people's private thoughts, and healed the unhealable. This time, these three men saw Jesus, their Messiah, in all of his divine glory. And they were thinking, my gosh, this is the one we've been living with, following, eating and sleeping with, traveling with for three years? Oh my gosh. Truly, to use the vernacular, they must have been totally blown away. And as I said, they've been walking and talking and living with him for three and a half years. And now they see who he really is. They knew it before Peter confessed that in the last chapter. They knew it here. They surmised that from what they had seen him do and say. But they, they hadn't seen it with their own eyes. And now they had. Whew. And that might have been Jesus' purpose for the transfiguration. After just days before, he told them clearly that he would be arrested, tortured, crucified, killed, and buried, but raised to life on the third day. Again, the topics that he discussed with Moses and Elijah. The three disciples may have been brought to witness this event in order to reassure them that Jesus is the Messiah, even though he would indeed be crucified as he had so surprisingly told them a few days earlier. I have to put this in context because all this is commonplace to us. But the combination of his earlier announcement and this transfiguration clearly demonstrated the extreme differences between what the disciples and really all of Israel thought the Messiah would be like and do, and the truth, the reality, the fact that the one and only unique and real Messiah has come, and he has come to serve and to be the suffering servant clearly prophesied in the Old Testament. But the rabbis and the students of the Old Testament, when they read these 
these scriptures that seem to point to the Messiah's suffering, they just shook their heads and say, I don't get it. They didn't come to the conclusion that we know. But just as he revealed his humiliation and his sufferings to them, it just makes sense that they are given another divine testimony to Jesus' status as a son of God. And then Jesus said, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Being aware, Jesus, being aware of probable difficulties, Jesus told the three disciples to mention his transfiguration to no one until after his resurrection. Clearly, this included the other disciples as well. Since his, his resurrection would be the ultimate confirmation of his person and ministry, until that happened, any reports of what these three disciples had just witnessed would be more likely to just draw more derision and scoffing from Jesus' enemies than it would be to strengthen the faith of his followers. He had to be resurrected first. They had to know it. So in verse 10, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will, future, will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. But they asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Like all Jews at that time, they were well aware of the prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. We read this earlier, where he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah. This is God speaking. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, of Yahweh. So there's confusion. Was John the Baptist Elijah or not? And they just saw Elijah. So there's this confusion. Like all Israelites, the disciple had heard that Elijah must come before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. But interestingly, neither Malachi nor Isaiah say that Elijah must come before the Messiah's first coming. The prophecies refer to the great and terrible day of Yahweh, which is the period of the end, 
which we now know will be when our Lord comes again. And it is that period when Elijah will return before the Messiah comes. At the same time, we know that the angel Gabriel told John the Baptist's father, Zecharias, that his son, John, would go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's Luke 1, 17. And he also said that Jesus, speaking of John, makes allusion to the same thing. In Matthew eleven fourteen, which we read a couple of months ago. Because Jesus said there, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come, referring to John the Baptist. Are you confused? So are the disciples. The question of the three disciples probably meant, Jesus, we know from Malachi that Elijah comes first before the Messiah. We've just seen evidence that you are the Messiah. And yet we also just saw Elijah. And it seems that he came after you. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things in the last days. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, referring to John the Baptist. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Remember, Herod had him beheaded. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Now, I was intending to end here, but I did some summarizing and some, really some explaining about Elijah and John the Baptist. And I'll ask you, give a nod or whatever, would you like me to give that to you now? Would you like to hear that? Okay. I see nods. Much of the confusion relating to the coming of, of Elijah is because first, nobody knew that there would be two advents of the Messiah, although at least the scholars should have known. And second, the idea of someone coming in the spirit and power of Elijah had never been considered until the angel Gabriel said it to Zechariah. Now, some points. Elijah was born and served as God's prophet, but he was taken up to heaven by chariots of fire, and he never died. He is mentioned by Malachi as coming before the great and awful day 
of Yahweh, which has not yet come. He appears with Moses at the transfiguration of Christ, as we just read. John the Baptist is identified by Christ as Elijah, both here in verse 12, as well as back in chapter 11, when he said, if you are willing to receive it. Elijah is likely one of the two witnesses of the tribulation. And we read about that in Revelation 11 and in Zechariah 4. These two witnesses will do great miracles in God's service. They will have great powers. They will even breathe fire out of their mouths. And they will be untouchable by their enemies until their work is completed. Then they will be killed by the beast and lay dead in the open for three and a half days while the evil world rejoices over them. But then they'll be resurrected by God in a way very similar to the way that God breathed life into Adam. And then they'll be taken visible to the whole world up to heaven. Their ministry will last for three and a half years, or 1,260 days. And because of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, where it says, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, I personally believe that these two witnesses will be Enoch and Elijah. Because those two men are the only people ever to be taken to heaven without dying so far. Other people believe it's Moses and Elijah, and they have their reasons as well. Now, Elijah had arrived in the work of John the Baptist, who ministered in his spirit and power as Gabriel told Zacharias. This is evident from a comparison of the life and work of both Elijah and John the Baptist. I'll give it to you now. Elijah was noted as being full of zeal for God. So was John the Baptist. Elijah boldly rebuked sin in kings, in high places. So did John the Baptist. Elijah called sinners and compromisers to a decision of repentance. So did John the Baptist. Elijah attracted multitudes in his ministry. So did John the Baptist. Elijah attracted the attention and anger of a king and his wife, Ahab and Jezebel. So did John the Baptist, Herod and Herodias. 
Elijah was an austere man. So was John the Baptist. Wore camel's hair with a leather belt, ate locusts and honey. Elijah fled to the wilderness. John the Baptist lived there. And finally, Elijah lived in a corrupt time and was used to restore failing spiritual life. So did John the Baptist. I hope that helps you with the confusion. But it's important to note that the prophecies of Elijah coming are him coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord, before the end times, before the tribulation, before the second coming of Christ. So the role of John the Baptist be in his spirit and power was very much the coming of Elijah, but not, not that person, but John the Baptist himself. I know Jesus helps the confusion when he says, if you can believe it, John, uh, Elijah's already come. But he wasn't speaking of the, the prophet Elijah. He's speaking of the prophet John the Baptist. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this incredible scene that Jesus shared with three of his disciples and through his apostle Matthew shared with us. And Father, I confess that most of the many times that I've read through these scriptures, I haven't really paused much to consider them in depth as I've done in studying for them this, this past week. And Lord, I truly am. And I'm amazed, I'm blessed, and I thank you especially for making clear what Jesus meant when he said that there are those standing here who will not taste death, will not taste death until the Son of Man has come in his kingdom. The meaning of that this, until the Son of Man is revealed in his holy power. That makes sense as we look at the transfiguration. And I thank you, Father, for that. Because there, there are some verses here that stumble people. There, there are some who point to that that verse 28 of chapter 16, and they point at that and they laugh at Christians because, hey, they all died and his kingdom hasn't come yet. So what do you guys believe in this junk for? Well, now we know why. 
because Jesus didn't say his physical kingdom would come. But he also says that his kingdom has come within us. We're told that elsewhere in several places in Scripture. That it's come in the believers in Christ and those of us who follow him. So, Father, thank you that when scoffers scoff, we know better. And we know that from you, from your Holy Spirit, revealing that to us as we dig deeper into these scriptures, these verses, these words. And I thank you. And Father, I thank you for sharing this incredible mountaintop experience that Peter, James, and John were blessed to experience. I thank you, Lord, for that. And unlike us, I know that this mountaintop experience followed them the rest of their lives, even as we know that Peter and I believe also John share in their writings before they died. Father, we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.